Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Digging In, Missouri Farm Bureau's podcast. I'm your host, at least for this edition, Garrett Hawkins, uh, and I'm very humbled to, to be able to serve as, as your president. I'm excited, as usual. I think you all know that about me. Uh, but today, I, I'm really excited to be joined by a colleague, uh, Mr. John Doolittle, uh, who serves as the president and CEO of the Missouri Hospital Association. So welcome, John. Thank you, Garrett. Happy to be here. So, so John, uh, as we get started, I mean, you and I have had at least a couple of occasions to be able to talk about issues of mutual interest to, to our members. And I think to get us started, why don't we, you know, you're pretty new in your role as well yeah. uh, with the association. So give our listeners a little bit of your background and how you, how you came to the hospital association. Happy to. So I'm from rural Northwest Missouri, beautiful Albany, Missouri, the, the county seat in Gentry County. And uh, I was born in a little hospital there. Grew up, went back east, and then landed in Kansas City. Um, married a beautiful girl, Jenny, from Conception Junction, Missouri. And she and I were raising a family in Kansas City. 2010, got the opportunity to move home. And um, I became the president and CEO of my little hometown hospital there, which was called Northwest Medical Center. About four years later, we became part of Mosaic Life Care, which is based in St. Joseph. So we're, we're part of a small and growing health system that, that takes care of people in Northwest Missouri. As part of my responsibilities there at the hospital, I got to start serving on the board of the Missouri Hospital Association. That was about seven years ago. Had a great opportunity through that organization to try and help make things better for the citizens of Missouri and the folks that take care of them. And um, my predecessor at Missouri Hospital Association, a man named Herb Kuhn, served us incredibly well for 12 years and decided to uh, to take his well-earned retirement at the end of <laughs> at the end of 2021, and um, the board selected me to succeed him. I started on October 18th, and um, almost four months in, I'm sure I have Jefferson City completely figured out at this point. And you were very gracious, and you hadn't been on the job long before our team came over and, and sat down and visited. <laughs> no, I, I knew I wanted to meet you guys, and and there is a, there's a little bit of a fish out of water, right, being from Albany, Missouri. And, <laughs> setting up shop here in Jeff City. So to visit with you and your team was actually, it gave me great comfort. It was super enjoyable, and I'm glad to be with you today. Well, um, I do I do want to start from a point of appreciation, you know, for who you represent and your members uh, within the organization. You know, as we think about the last few years now, um, our providers, our hospitals have been on the front lines. And when I think of our members, you know, we have a lot of Farm Bureau members, John, that are EMTs themselves or, or first responders, uh, a number of nurses that I know that are on the delegate floor wearing their farmer hat, but also are, are engaged in healthcare discussions when we talk about that as an organization. So, so just know the appreciation is so strong from our members, from our organization uh, about um, the way in which you all have carried about and making sure that people are taken care of during what has been a very challenging time. So, so just know, please pass along our appreciation. I will. And thank you. And I, and I know you mean that. I know you have a very significant family history as part of the healthcare delivery system at home and, and, um, you know, farmers and farm folks, healthcare providers, we're all in this together and we're all really the same, right? We, we earn a living by taking care of people who need to be taken care of. And, and that, that kinship is, uh, is real. Well, John, you, you know, you and I have talked a lot about just rural communities. Mm -hmm. And for us every day, I think about how are we going to bring the kids home? And in fact, I'm going to talk about that at our young farmer and rancher conference, uh, with 
what will be 600 plus young farmers and ranchers. It's going to be awesome. But when we think about policies that affect our members, yes, we work on farm bill and we work on inputs and all these issues that are affecting us at the farm gate. But we also have a whole bucket of issues that affect the rural quality of life and ultimately give us the challenge of how we bring the kids home. How do you bring the kids home to the farm if there isn't a strong community around it? So <clears throat> talk a little bit about the challenges that, that you see facing rural hospitals now, because as I think about that bucket of issues in rural quality of life, health care is right there. We have to have access to quality, affordable health care to bring the kids home and to take care of our seniors. So what are the challenges that you see right now? Yeah, you know, healthcare in rural areas particularly, um, it's part of the solution two different ways. One is quality healthcare, quality education, electricity, water, broadband now. You know, those are the must-haves. And, and when we are going to um, help people find their way back to rural areas, and I say back to, in some cases, help people find life in a rural area True. for the first time, those are the must-haves. Um, and so quality health care, strong hospitals and health systems and other care delivery mechanisms, just key parts of every community, of course. The other side of that, not just from a service provider standpoint, but from an employer standpoint. You know, hospitals and health systems in Missouri employ 29,000 people. Payroll is about $1.8 billion a year, a little over $60,000 a year. Those are good jobs doing important work, taking care of people. And you know, in my case, right, I, I had the great pleasure of moving home from Kansas City back to Albany in 2010 because a job was available to me. I got there and I was surrounded by a bunch of other highly trained, highly professional, motivated servants. And um, they recognized what I did, which is that living in a small town is actually a luxury, right? It's no hardship. It is. Th these are people who could have worked anywhere and could work anywhere and decided to spend their days taking care of friends and neighbors in, in that sort of intimate rural community. And, um, boy, I had a great time doing it. Now, the challenges. Challenges are, number one, there is this perception problem, right? People don't necessarily understand what a luxury it is to live in a, in a small community. And, and, you know, access to shopping, access to theaters, access to whatever. These are the things that you hear commonly. Funny thing is you often hear people say, you know, I thought that until I moved there, and now I realize I can get anywhere in my car in an hour, and I can get all that stuff, but I also get the peace and tranquility, I get the ease of life, and I get the, the depth of interpersonal relationships, faith community relationships. They, they come to understand that it's not an either-or, but, but a lot of folks think it is, and so that's a real challenge. It is tough to recruit um, highly skilled medical professionals, especially if they're not from there tough to recruit to, to small towns. The other thing that's a challenge is that, um, you know, healthcare as a segment, I think there's this, this funny idea right now that, you know, hospitals and health systems are fat and happy and making a ton of money. Um, I, I, I know because I work with them every day. If you, if you offered folks the deal, hey, we Let's go back in time two years. Let's not have the COVID-19 pandemic happen, and let's just run through as usual. Everybody would take that deal. Nobody's fat and happy over the last after the last two years. Um, workforces are tired. Organizations have been stressed. It has been incredibly difficult work. And so when you talk about challenges of rural health care, perhaps it's difficult to recruit. 
we have an aging workforce, we have a tired workforce, and the financial pressures of increased costs without comparable rises in reimbursement, unfortunately, can make it really tough for rural hospitals that even before COVID-19, half of the rural hospitals in the country were running negative operating margins. That's not getting any better anytime soon. You know, John, I can appreciate where you're coming from. Um, You know, every month at our local hospital board meeting, um, and again, you know, my personal story and connection there, you know, we see it. We see it amongst the team. Just, you know, they're so proud to serve. At the same time, they're tired. They're stressed. You know, we hear the reports about open positions that they're still trying to fill. Our CEO is a registered nurse, and part of the time, here lately, she spends part of her day on the floor yep. uh, taking care of patients. Uh, we also talk about supply chain constraints. Every month, there's something new, it seems like, that we're having trouble getting. Yeah. And, and I know that's similar to everywhere, right? Th- things that used to be routine, there are no <clears throat> routines right now, right? We have to think about everything. And, um, you know, this goes into how you conduct yourself in your community, people's um, people's anger or frustration about what's happened over the last couple of years. It's all of that. And you, and you doctors and stir- nurses still rank highly when you see um, public opinion polls about most respected careers. Um, hospitals lower. And, and I sit here as somebody who was a hospital president for almost two years of this pandemic, seeing the heroic things that people were doing, now representing all Missouri hospitals. And it's very difficult for me to understand how hospitals, after two years of what I really believe has been heroic service, could be falling in that way. But that's where we are. And um, part of my job is, is to help share messages about what's really going on and hope that the esteem for that work is where it should be. Okay, so I, I see your energy. So I'm going to flip it on you. Okay. What are the opportunities that you see? You're a few months into the job. Yeah. We're still trying to emerge out of, I always talk to our team about leading out of the pandemic, yep. right? And emerging out of this and finding the new normal. What are the opportunities that you see ahead for providers, your hospitals, yeah. the healthcare industry? You know, I always, my first silver lining that I always go to here is that we have learned so much in the last two years about the power of partnerships and the, and the power of relationships. And we've seen people step out of the routine into how am I going to solve this problem today? And in many cases, that has been setting aside historical rivalries or divisions or maybe a sense that isn't my job or, or whatever it may be. And now you've got a bunch of folks who've had this shared experience. And I'll tell you, in, in Albany, Missouri, I was the CEO of the hospital for 10 years, and I had a friendly relationship with Tri-County Public Health, our local health department. We got along great. We, you know, we'd set up a booth at their events. They'd set up a booth at our events, things like that. We weren't joined at the hip in regard to how to help people be healthy and well in our community. We have the stronger relationship now coming out of two years of, of being in the foxhole together than we ever had before. And we think about innovative ways to bring new services, leverage each other's strengths. Um, I think that that's a, a tiny example of a really important concept here, which is we've all learned about system thinking. We've all learned you can have your competitive pressures 
individual organizations are going to have their strategies. They're they're going to they're going to compete for business, no problem. But they also recognize the level of interdependency and systemness and connectedness. And you've got folks who are really thinking about trying to be the vehicle to help solve large societal problems and healthcare problems that then lead you to this idea of gosh, where do I want to live and who do I want to be and how am I going to make my community stronger? How am I going to build resilience among the workforce? How am I going to help people actually live the life they want to live, which is far beyond a product line or a service? And I think that shift in mindset is a tremendous opportunity. And I think the shared experiences that leaders and others have had will lead us to an era where um, that level of creativity and inventing options is is going to produce important outcomes and and opportunities. Okay, you've said several things in that response that I want to run with, so I'm going to have to prioritize here, Sorry. John. No, no, it was really good. Um, okay, top story, Wall Street Journal today. Inflation, U.S. inflation has accelerated to a 40-year high. Those of us that farm and ranch feel it every day. Yep. Everything we touch has gone up in price. I mean, every American feels it. Talk to me about what you're seeing specifically within the healthcare sector that helps that will help our listeners get an even greater perspective. You bet. You bet. So the cost of pharmaceuticals, key input for the hospital and health system business, right? It's gone up 20% since 2019. Um, labor costs, there there have been, you know, unprecedented demand on healthcare providers. You've got to have people to provide those services. You've had people who have, um, because of their age and experience, their preferences, whatever else, have left the workforce. And then you have wave after wave of, of intense demand from COVID and everything else, right? Even at its height, COVID wasn't the, it was never the majority of hospitalizations or healthcare needs among, among our hospitals and health systems. It was, it was an additional thing that was very serious, but we still had to keep doing all the other things to keep people healthy and well. And that additional constraint, um, you know, it, it leads to scarcity. Scarcity plus cash from stimulus, things like that, as we went through this sort of wartime effort, right? And they had to make sure we've got an infrastructure in place to, to answer the, the challenges of this. You get a lot of extra cash in on a short-term basis. You supercharge a market, costs go up. We had to pay whatever it took to get access to PPE for our workers because our workers needed to be safe when they were taking care of folks. We had to pay whatever it took for other components of the delivery system. But that's not the way reimbursement works in healthcare. I know healthcare seems very expensive to consumers. I understand that. Um, but the market on the price side doesn't work the way it works in a lot of other industries, right? It's highly regulated. Uh, a huge portion of that comes from government payers. And, you know, you, so you've got 20% increases in areas and you've got a 2% raise in what you're allowed to collect for those services from Medicare, from Medicaid. Um, when inflation goes up and all of those costs go up, but your reimbursement is somewhat fixed, short-term infusions of cash don't take you very far, Garrett. You know that. Yeah. It, it, you've got to be able to put some, put some hay in the barn, right? And we've not been able to do that for the last two years. So you talked a little bit about labor, and I kind of want to look at it from the standpoint of, you know, labor costs. 
obviously the human element, um, and then dovetail that to just what we're seeing with retirements as the baby boom generation, the baby boomers are, are, are retiring. We see that here mm-hmm. at Farm Bureau. I'm sure you see that within the workforce for the healthcare industry, but that also um, creates dynamics, challenges, opportunities for services in rural areas too, Absolutely. as baby boomers retire and want to stay close to kids and grandkids. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that. Unsurprisingly, you are speaking my language. I, it <laughs> seems like every time you and I talk, we just, we heard our necks like nodding at each other. But, <laughs> but um, I, I said this earlier, living in a small town is a luxury. I really believe that. I think the segments that can feel that and benefit from it the most are young kids and then retirees. Se- active seniors, man, where else would you want to live? than, a, than a, a sort of frictionless small town that has all of the services you need, easy to form relationships, easy to get involved in things. You feel great about safety and security, being outdoors and all the rest. So I think rural hospitals and health systems have an opportunity to help grow their communities as destinations, places where somebody either wants to stay or places where they want to move. So you know the housing market the way it is right now, Sell your house in Kansas City, Omaha, Des Moines, wherever it is. Set up shop in Gentry County. You know, you're, you're really pretty well set. And I think our communities need to think about themselves in that way of rolling out the welcome mat. And, and um, again, water, electricity, add broadband to the list, education, and health care. If, you, if your community is strong in that way, I think you have an opportunity to compete as an ideal destination or place to live for a lot of these seniors who are retiring and ready to join in a community like that. So, so John, we've talked quite a bit about broadband and just its importance across the board to the state and to our rural communities and ultimately out to the farm or rural gate. Mm -hmm. Telemedicine is a huge opportunity. And, you know, when I think about it, I don't see telemedicine necessarily as the competitor to the rural hospital, but when we talk about it at board meetings with our team, it's a it's a gap filler yep. as we think about needs that we can't meet. Behavioral health, number one. Number two, cardiac health. Mm-hmm. There's a tremendous opportunity of telemedicine. We have the technology, but we don't have the bandwidth from our internet provider, the one that's yeah. available, yeah. to to be able to do it at our hospital. So how do you see telemedicine fitting into the equation of how we keep rural hospital doors open? What's that look like? Yeah, it, it's essential. No question. Um, th- there's a great article in Modern Healthcare right now talking about how Alabama hospitals and it, you know, it's, it's about a specific segment, a specific number of hospitals in Alabama. But you don't cut your way to greatness as a rural hospital. You can have this temptation to take away this service, that service, because they're difficult to afford, they're difficult to provide, they, they, they require real expertise. At some point, if you keep cutting, you stop being that key partner of the people in your community. You stop being the destination. What rural hospitals and health systems can do so well is that primary care piece kind of on steroids, right? They wrap your arm, their arms around you. The things that other people are trying to figure out how to do in suburban and urban areas around understanding social determinants of health, what your barriers are to health and wellness, getting you a ride here, getting you to whatever service you need, making sure you've got your meds, 
<coughs> Man, small towns are built to do that. There's people that are already doing it. What you need to be able to bring in so that that rural facility can function as a sort of hub, you need those connections to the specialty services. And there are markets emerging. There are providers in place. Some of them are right here in Missouri that are excellent at providing tertiary and quaternary care expertise, really high levels of expertise through a telehealth platform, which is easier for people to use and digest if they're actually sitting at the local hospital in an exam room with a nurse who can make sure they understand, help them schedule follow-up, get the note back to the primary care doc, and, and then all the other social supports, right? So it's not necessarily a competitor. It's like most things, it could be a competitor. But I think the services that can be delivered by the rural hospital, the rural doc, the rural practice, whatever, they're going to outcompete some random online doc in a box from a primary care standpoint. They can be the hub and the trusted point of connection to all sorts of specialty services that are difficult to deliver at scale in a rural area. But when you have proper broadband, a, a proper telehealth you know, set of tools, which are not that hard to come by anymore, but most importantly, those markets and relationships, then you can really architect a more ambitious, not a less ambitious vision of specialty care in rural areas. See, I really like where you're go- what you've said there, because there are some there are some arguments that okay, telehealth could be could mm-hmm. be done to the detriment, and, and I like what you're saying. Is you know, as I've thought about okay, how would our family use you know telehealth for a specialty service, and I think about using the phone or the iPad at the house, you know. Um, not all the comfort is there. Like you said, like yeah. there's still a comfort that's provided if you're in the exam room and you have a local nurse who is helping you understand what's being communicated or what's being done. Yep. It seems only logical that for the full service that it, there's still got to be a physical component in, in yeah. a lot of cases. And, and and even if not physical, which often it is physical, it's it's the connective pieces. Okay. The connective piece. Okay. Know, it, and, and it's all of it. But it is. I mean, I've seen it. I was in Albany, Missouri for 11 years, and I watched folks walk in the door. In many cases, they were there for specialty services, and in many of those cases, they were delivered by telehealth. Our endocrinology clinic for the 11 years I was there was done via telehealth. Our behavioral health services were done via telehealth. We have ways to bring docs in to help with hospitalist coverage, cardiology, pulmonology, all these other things. When you talk about those specialty services, there's always got to be a handoff, right? Pe- people get confused or they don't know what to do next. And it isn't necessarily the the bailiwick of every subspecialist provider to help you connect back to your home and environment, all that. That piece is what rural places are just built to do, and they're great at it. And so as they architect a holistic view of the person and include access to services through telehealth modalities, Again, I think you get this really cool, rich, ambitious thought about what rural health should be. Okay, so a word that you used uh, a little bit ago, resiliency. Yeah. We talk a lot about it in agriculture. We've had to um, because of what we've seen within our supply chains. You know, we've talked about the fact that fertilizer, herbicides, we've seen all of these challenges within the supply chain. And during the height of the pandemic, at the end of the supply chain with consumers, when they would walk into grocery stores and in some cases, 
the product that they were there for was not there in the meat case or in the freezer or perhaps on the shelf. So let's talk about resiliency from a health care standpoint. Yeah. What does that look like now that we continue to emerge out of the pandemic? What have you learned and what what should our members be thinking about as policies are considered as always about healthcare and healthcare reforms? Yeah, you know, it's a great topic. It's kind of one of my favorites. Um, there aren't easy answers. Because in all cases, we want to buy things through markets that are efficient, right? We want high quality at a low cost. And rural health care, um, you know, your local rural hospital probably doesn't look as busy as your specialty academic medical center, your specialty hospital in, in, a, in an urban area. Um, but when you need it, you need it. There are policy decisions that have been made over time regarding the way rural hospitals, and particularly something called critical access hospitals, kind of the smallest rurals, um, where they can be preferentially reimbursed by Medicare and by Medicaid on a, to help them cover their costs of being available. There have been policy thoughts that say, man, we don't need critical access hospitals. We just need a freestanding emergency room. In every small town, they can do outpatient, and they can do ER, and then anybody that needs to be in the hospital can go somewhere else. And I suppose that sounds good on paper. And I think there is a place for this model that's been passed, the rural emergency hospital model. There, there are communities where that's going to be a really good fit. As somebody who is the CEO of a critical access hospital, I will tell you, um, you're already asking doctors and nurses and others to kind of be out on the edge, right? They can't pick up the phone and have the cardiologist run down the hall or the neurologist that's run right. down the hall. They are, they are there um and and need a level of capability and flexibility to take care of whatever walks in the door so i think from a policy standpoint we need to consider that the absolute most efficient doesn't leave you much room when you have a disruption to the system right if if nobody had any extra and all of a sudden things are sitting in a boat off the off of los angeles there just didn't any and I think we as a country are so used to this idea of abundance and efficiency. We're shocked when you can't get something. And it has been very disruptive in the last couple of years and everybody wants to fix it. One of the things I think we need to think about is if you don't put some away for a rainy day, then when it rains, it ain't there. And I think we need to support our local hospitals and health systems, among others. I'm not saying it's just hospitals and health systems. But you have to provide a level of support so that when you need them, they're there and they're highly functioning. And um, I'm in favor of policies that help with that. I'm also in favor of communities choosing to recognize and support the people who dedicate their lives to being there and being ready when they're needed. Well, I can certainly attest that I'm proud of Ellet Memorial Hospital, Absolutely. second smallest critical access hospital in the state. Um, our team has been like teams all across the state and country have been so valiant in, yeah. in providing service, you know, and it's only fitting that we as Farm Bureau with the footprint in every county of the state and just by the nature of who we are and who we represent, healthcare is just such a critical part of of allowing us to do our jobs on the farm. Yeah. And when we need that emergency service or when we need that ongoing care, 
knowing that it is there. Yeah. Um, and again, I can attest, you know, our community does really well when we have providers that we know and trust. Uh, in some cases, we've got hometown people that were raised there that returned home to help provide that service. And it works really well, but it's got to be a comprehensive approach. And I appreciate you shedding some light, you know, from a policy standpoint, you know, especially at the federal level as we think about reimbursements and those impacts on hospitals that are delivering service. But if there's anything, I, I hope our folks will think about what resiliency looks like from a health care sector standpoint. And you have really given me something to think about when you think about that excess capacity you're right when beds aren't always filled that doesn't mean <laughs> that there isn't a, a a need that works itself out right over correct over time so correct yeah what else do you want to put on is there anything else you want to wrap up with for our for uh, our listeners no, this is this is such a pleasure and and um you know i, I guess the thing i would close with is um it's important to have rural voices participating actively here in Jefferson City and everywhere else. So I'm glad folks are listening to your podcast, not just today. Actually, this is probably one of your worst ones because oh. <laughs> of your guest, but but um, that folks are staying that staying engaged and paying attention. Um, one of the things I've I've learned and, and people told me, and now I've seen it, the power of stories and the power of engagement with elected officials and others, man, it's real. And and I, I elected officials have difficult jobs tracking every detail of every potential policy issue everywhere that's tough um when they can hear from their constituents about what matters to those folks and have it explained in a very real way through a personal story i think that's powerful so whether you whether your thing is healthcare, whether it's education whether it's farm policy whatever it is i encourage rural folks to make sure that they that they share their stories and engage it, it's um it can be easy to be forgotten when you're, you're sort of out of sight, out of mind. Um, but there is real affinity here in Jefferson City for the people who are out in rural areas doing that hard work to feed everybody. Well, I certainly did not ask you to plug that, John, but what a great plug for Missouri Farm Bureau's grassroots advocacy programs, Capital Connection, that occurs uh, one day every week during the state legislative session. And then coming up February 22nd, 23rd, we will have our annual legislative briefing and banquet. So members engage. Do just what John said. And, and I'll wrap up by saying Thank you, John. Thank you for your partnership at the Missouri Hospital Association. Uh, welcome to town and look forward to getting to, to know and work with you even more. And until next time, folks, uh, think big, do good, and we'll talk soon.